0: going to be reading from the NIV version this morning, and it's Genesis 1, chapter 1, verse 1, to chapter 2, verse 3. Do you want to look it up? If you'd better get a better chance. So NIV, Genesis 1, uh, to chapter 2, verse 3. <clears throat> And God said, let there be an expanse of water. So God made the expanse and separated the water under the expanse. So God called the expanse sky. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the water under the sky be gathered to one place and let it dry, and let dry ground appear. And it was so. God called the dry ground land and gathered the waters, he called seas, and God saw that it was good. Then God said, let the land produce vegetation, seed bearing plants and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it, according to their various kinds. And it was so. The land produced vegetation, plants bearing seeds according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit with their seed in accordance to their kinds. And God saw that it was good, And there was evening, and there was morning, the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the sky to separate the day from the night, and let them serve as signs to mark seasons and days and years. And let them them be lights in the expanse of the sky to give light on the earth. And it was so. God made two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He also made the stars. God set them in the expanse of the sky to give light on the earth, to govern the day and the night, and to separate light from darkness. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening, and there was morning, the fourth day. And God said, let the water teem with living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the sky. So God created the great creatures of the sea and every living and moving thing with which, with which the water teems according to their kind and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them and said, be fruitful and increase in number and fill the water in the seas and let the birds increase on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. And God said, let land produce living creatures according to their kinds, livestock, creatures that move along the ground, and wild animals each according to its kind. And it was so. God made the wild animals according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness, And let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it, they will be yours for food. And to all of the beasts of the earth and all the birds of the air and all the creatures that move on the ground, everything that has breath or life in it, I give every green plant for food And it was so god saw all that he had made and it was very good and there was evening and there was morning the sixth day thus the heavens and the earth were completed in in their vast array by the seventh day god had finished the work he had been doing so on the seventh day he rested from all his work and god blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on, on it he rested from the work of creating that he all the creating that he had done we'll all right
1: wonderful it's the word of god thank you ben um, so, this week's talk's gonna be a little bit different. Uh, like last week's was in a moment, Matt is gonna come and uh, speak to us about is evolutionary science incompatible with Christian faith in the light of the text we've just heard? Um, and we're gonna have a chance to ask Matt questions again at the end. Um, so here is the link you need for this week. Uh, again, it's www.slido.com, um, but the code you need to put in is 1501, so the start of today's date. So different to last week, 1501. Um, now, unlike last week, Matt has slides, so that's not going to stay up there. So um, maybe make a note of that or uh, navigate to that web page now, um, and then you can stick questions in at any point. Um, and the nice thing about this, this system is that you can see the questions that other people are putting in, and you can vote for the ones that you would like to hear answered. So if you see a question you like... Um, tap the little thumbs up icon and then at the end I'll come back and I'll ask Matt the questions that got the most thumbs up. Does that make sense? Cool. Um, So Matt is uh, a great Friend, a fellow leader in this church, and um, he's someone who's got particular uh, expertise, I guess, being uh, working on a PhD at the moment, looking at um, some of the theological implications of uh, evolutionary science. So it's wonderful for us to be able to benefit from some of his insights. So, would you please give Matt a big welcome?
2: Okay, morning, everybody. Are you all well? Give me a nod. Yes, splendid, super. Um, What a joy. It's a joy and a bit of a risk, to be honest, for me to be uh, talking about my PhD subject with you all. So I hope you've cleared the afternoon. Um, No, no, half an hour, half an hour. um, This morning I had a few messages from some of the leaders in the church, and Daniel messaged me and said, just, you know, relax, don't worry about the time. I said this to my wife. My wife declared, you should never, ever tell Matt Fell not to worry about the time. So, I will put uh, 30 minutes on the clock, and um, I'm looking forward to your questions, so please please do, um, this is the one time I don't mind someone taking out their phone during a talk and just jotting your questions down. Um, I feel a little stitched up when it comes to the questions, because last week, when Ruth spoke, I think she said possibly about maybe 10 times, oh, Matt will answer that question next week, so thank you, Ruth. Simeon said similar things as well. Um, So much Uh, to talk about today and I honestly could talk for the whole day, Um, but I won't, you'd be very grateful to know. Um, I want us to kind of start thinking about this big question. Um, Is evolutionary science incompatible with Christian faith? And, um, it's it's a it's a big question uh, for our day and age. Um, about 16 years ago, I stepped foot into church for the first time. Didn't grow up in a in a Christian family. Uh, I was at university. I was in my third year. I um, accepted contemporary science had no reason to question it uh, entered into church uh, found that my life was turned upside down when it felt like the lord jesus in his kindness got me by the scruff of the neck and just poured his love and grace into my life but i had huge questions around this this area come from a sci- a, a sciencey family both my parents studied biology to quite a high level both worked in that kind of area um and so this was a big question for me and i remember um When I became a Christian, it was a year or two after a a chap called Richard Dawkins published a book called The God Delusion. And all my housemates had read it, and a couple of them had grown up as Christians, read Dawkins' book, decided, ah, let's throw all this religion and stuff out of the window uh, because of evolutionary science. And so it it was just what we spent all our time talking about, dad and playing computer games, if I'm honest. Not so much study. And so just throughout my my time walking with Jesus, this has been a big question. I never thought that I'd end up doing my PhD upon it, uh, but I am, and I love it, and that's perhaps a story for another time. Like I said, there is so much for us to talk about, so many things to kind of get into nitty-gritty, but essentially my my aim for this talk is is a bit more kind of modest than to answer every question. Um, I want to persuade you of two things. Uh, the first is that evolutionary science is not as opposed to Christian faith as it is sometimes claimed to be. The second point is that the Bible is not as prohibitive of evolutionary ideas as we think it is. I just I, I, I want to kind of take this idea of there being a conflict and kind of soften that idea essentially, and just to say. Um, Christians have lots of thoughts and opinions about this. Different church traditions will have different takes on this at different church individuals. Individuals in this church will have different opinions on this. And what I'm doing today is I'm sharing my understanding uh, as I've reached it from reading and thinking and praying and reflecting and talking to scientists and theologians about this. What I'm sharing today is not the official position of City Church. And so if you don't agree with me, don't worry, you're not about to get kicked out of City Church. Membership isn't dependent upon any particular position about how God made the world. As Christian, All Christians believe that God did make the cosmos, but how he did so is up for grabs. And The joy of being a part of a church family is we get to talk about these things, discuss, and like any siblings, occasionally we get to fight and argue about it, but in a loving, we make up afterwards kind of way. Um, which is to give you permission to come at me later if you disagree. Okay. So I'm going to structure the talk around three tensions um, that people... uh, Three big picture tensions between um, evolutionary science and what we see in the Bible. Um, And these tensions are... um, I wonder if you can read that. You probably don't need to put your glasses on for that. Sorry if you can't. These tensions are, evolution explains the origin and development of life. There's no need for a creator. Whereas when we open the Bible, when we listen to what Ben beautifully read out in his northern tones to us earlier on, the Bible says God is the creator of all things. Evolutionary science says that biological species emerge out of random genetic mutations, which inadvertently allow them to survive. In other words, there's no purpose or order in nature. But when we read the Bible, Genesis says that God made each species according to their kind, so that natures are created and they have a a purpose to them. Third tension comes from this, evolution teaches the survival of the fittest, which implies that nature is violent, death is natural, and creatures are selfish, whereas the Bible says the world was originally very good, selfishness and death are the result of humanity's fall. So these are the the three tensions that I want us to talk about today. Um, And it's big picture stuff. I'm sure you've got lots of very specific questions. Matt Messenger is very keen for me to talk about dinosaurs. Uh, Maybe later in the Q&A, we might get there. Uh, I want us to kind of start with this big picture and then we can get into the fine-grained details. So, evolution explains the origin and development of life, leaving no room for creator. Well, uh, we heard, as Ben read, Genesis 1, and it's not the only place in the Bible. In fact, throughout Scripture, the Bible is clear. God is the creator of all things. He cares for all things, is intimately involved in the universe that he has made. And yet, there he is, Richard Dawkins, um, speaking on behalf of, of many atheists, would say that actually, evolution makes it highly unlikely that there is a creator God. Evolution is a natural process that needs no divine guidance or intervention and it works about any higher purpose. So the big idea here is that evolutionary science has done an excellent job of giving us a causal, historical account of how life has developed on our planet as it is today. We can look back and say this led to this, and that's why flamingos look like this. Flamingo? Somebody dressed as a flamingo earlier on. Anyway, um, welcome to City Church. we have a causal account of how creatures are what they are. Therefore, there's no need to re- to, to refer to a creator to explain things. We can explain them uh, by this very naturalistic, materialistic way. Well, is that a knockdown argument against there being uh, a creator? All depends on who the creator is and how that creator interacts with creation. What's interesting is when we look at Genesis 1, the passage that, that Ben read for us, you're never going to be able to read that, are you? <laughs> um, throughout Genesis, God creates the world that he makes, and then he invites it to participate in his creative work. So, verse 11 says, God says, let the earth sprout vegetation. And then in verse 24 to 25, God says, let the earth bring forth living creatures. So what we see in Genesis 1 is that God creates natural processes and then delegates to them. God establishes the processes of nature to to bring about the ends that they naturally do, and that is how he works. Um, One theologian from the medieval period, Um, Often we think of those medieval bumpkins as not really knowing much about the world. Uh, Thomas Aquinas, intellectual giant from the 13th century, said, God so governs things that he makes some of them to be causes of others in his government. and then he uses this analogy just as a master who not only imparts knowledge to his pupils but gives also the faculty of teaching others. So a good teacher not only shares knowledge but helps their pupils share that knowledge on with others. Quines is saying that God is a creator who not only creates things but he enables them to to share in his creative work. And so The relationship that we see between God the Creator and creatures in the Bible is one which theologians call non-competitive, non-competitive. It's not that God and creatures are competing for space in the universe. The Bible says that all things that were made were made by God. God is not a part of the universe. He's not an object in it like you or I or a badger or the chair that you're sat on. God is outside all things. Space and time upholds all things. He is beyond and yet closer to all things than we could possibly imagine. And so he's not competing for space. So when God says to the earth, let the earth bring forth living creatures, the earth does that with all integrity in Genesis and yet so does God. I find this remarkable that there in the very first page of the Bible you essentially have biogenesis that living things spring spring forth from the earth God creates, establishes and uses what we call secondary causes to fulfill his purposes so think about when you make a cup of tea you use a kettle to do so I would still say I went to Philippe's house and he made me a cup of tea I don't say Philippe's kettle made me a cup of tea you see what I'm saying there? And this gives integrity to creation. The fact that God makes things so that they have natures and they fulfill them, that they can produce other things, uh, gives an integrity to the way that the world works. It's the basis of why we do science, why we look at things and go, wow, isn't it amazing how things work together? And I think God delights in this process. Again and again in Genesis 1, God says, this is good. This is good. I need to explain the football image, don't I? Um, hopefully this will make it all a little bit clearer. This uh, is uh, Leicester City Football Club, um, the greatest football team of all time uh, during the greatest year of the Premier League, the 2015-16 to 16 year, when we won it, unsurprisingly. And um, the chap here, uh, the cheeky cha- Italian, is Claudio Ranieri. And he was the manager that year, excellent leader and manager. Um, and. It's correct to say that that year, the Leicester City players won the league. It's also correct to say that that year, Claudio Ranieri won the league. And those two statements aren't in competition with one another. Why? Because Claudio and the players play the game at different levels, don't they? He manages, they're on the pitch. That is a flawed but but useful analogy for how God and creatures interact. So, does an evolutionary causal account of how species arose squeeze out God? No, not the God of the Bible. Let's get on to our second tension. Evolution teaches that biological species emerge out of of random genetic mutations, which inadvertently allow them to survive. This is the idea that really the evolutionary process is completely arbitrary and random. This gentleman here is Stephen Jay Gould, a brilliant scientist, um, one of the kind of giants of evolution in the 20th century. And he says this, evolution works by natural selection of random genetic mutations that allow some organisms to survive and reproduce better than others. It's a very kind of standard textbook statement of just the randomness of evolution. And uh, Stephen Jay Gould would emphasize the randomness of things so much that he would say that if you could kind of rewind the clock and evolution would happen again, it would look completely different. Uh, If you could take the tape of life back and replay it again, things would look completely different because nature is just so random and arbitrary. Um, And that causes a tension because, as we heard in Genesis, God creates uh, species according to their kinds, with a nature, with an essence, um, with some kind of purpose behind it. How do we make sense of that tension? Well, the first thing I want to say is that in the Bible, the picture that we're given of God is, is not one of a God who plays dice. Actually, the Bible gives us plenty of resources. Again, you, there's no way on earth you can read those. I'm enjoying your squinting faces like, what on earth does that say? I could put anything up there, couldn't I? <laughs> Matt Fell is king. That's not what it says. Um... Scripture gives us a perspective on how God and creatures work um, that allow us to see that when things appear to be random and, in a sense, are, God is nonetheless still sovereign over them, still working his purposes out. So a famous proverb says, the lot is cast into the lap. Lots are like kind of the ancient world equivalent of dice. I don't entirely know how they work, if I'm completely honest, but there's like a randomness to it. The lot is cast, but every decision is from the Lord. And then in Matthew's Gospel, Jesus says that when a sparrow falls from the sky, God knows about it. Something which seems kind of random, arbitrary, even quite sad, God knows. He knows every hair on your head. And then... In the Old Testament, you have the wonderful story of Joseph and his brothers. I say wonderful, it's a very painful story, where his brothers uh, betray him, sell him into slavery, leave him for dead. And at the end of the story, there's this beautiful reconciliation. And Joseph says, you, brothers, meant what you did for evil, but God worked it for good. And this gives us a perspective, that even when things seem random, arbitrary, meaningless, even tragic... The good God of the Bible can be working his purposes. And so even if evolution is random, actually the God of Scripture is sovereign over all things, working out his purposes. However, the jury really is out on how random evolution is. Particularly over the last 30, 40 years of evolutionary science, this is a very fraughtly debated question. And not just kind of on the fringes of science, but at the very heart um, of contemporary academic biology. Um, So let me just throw some thoughts out for you about this. Um, Recently, uh, there has been, well, over the last 50 years, um, biologists have noticed uh, what we call evolutionary convergence. Um, Here's the definition of evolutionary convergence. It's the process by which distinctly related organisms evolve similar adaptations in response to similar environmental pressures. So for example, let's talk about the octopus. The octopus has a very similar eye to you and I, and to, uh, most other vertebrates. However, the octopus and the kind of vertebrae line diverted from one another a very, very long time ago. And our common ancestor, the last species before kind of creatures which would become octopuses went that way and creatures that would become you and I went that way, our last shared ancestor did not have a camera eye. So what that means is in very different lineages and very different circumstances, we have natural selection has produced the same solution. And that raises all sorts of questions. There's lots of other examples, and they're really fun and wonderful, but I don't have time to go into them. Um, Come talk to me about bees sometimes and hexagons. But this chap on the right here, who can sometimes be seen walking around down by the river here, I've cycled past him a few times, and I've yet to work up the courage to say hello to him. His name is Simon Conway Morris. He was a professor of biology here at Cambridge University. Um, He has done a lot of work on evolutionary convergence, and he says this, Evolution is not wholly random. The environment imposes constraints, and these in turn can be seen to impose a degree of predictability. This does not rule out novelty, but does indicate that evolution is not a random walk. If you want to look into this a little bit more, I'd also really commend uh, doing a Google search on the extended evolutionary synthesis, um, which is a a big debate going on at the moment uh, about the role of culture and behavior, particularly in evolution, and raises the question of how random and arbitrary is evolution. It's an open question. There's definitely some degree to which there is randomness in the process, but how much that has been overstated is, is is a big question at the moment. But as I said, even if evolution is random, the God of the Bible can still be seen to be sovereign and good over it. This makes me wonder. What if, over the twists and turns of life, there is a purpose, slowly working Itself out for good. A number of of my kind of atheist friends um, have said to me that they just they just can't believe that God is there, and they kind of they often then say, you know, you're really lucky that you can believe that. Um, I kind of can't help but feel there's a bit of condescension sometimes when they say it. Like it's really cool that you're naive enough to think that that's the case. But I've been through some things, and I think differently. Um, But actually I found in my life that trust in God's purpose actually allows me to look at the hard things in the face, to accept them, to face up to them, and to trust through them. Um, I found that when I've worked in situations like with homeless adults, found that when my mum was getting very ill and died at a young age. Life can sometimes seem very scary, very arbitrary, very meaningless, Um, and yet Christians throughout the centuries have found that they can still trust in a God who is over all those things, working his purposes for good, and that in light of that, actually, they can face up to those situations with courage. Perhaps you're here, and you're looking in on this Christian thing, and you just think, I don't know if I can. There's just too much suffering and hardship in the world, and I, I can understand that. That was, uh, that was Charles Darwin's big question, actually. And we need to address that. So we're going to come on to, to the final tension. Um, now, the next slide is quite a graphic image on it. So if uh, a bit of blood um, upsets you, I would look away now. You've been warned. Um, There he is. Um, Evolution teaches the survival of the fittest. Doesn't that then imply that nature is violent, death is natural, and creatures are selfish? And this causes a tension with Scripture because the Bible says God made the world and he made it to be very good. I I had to put a crocodile on here because... um, In the Fell household, there is a certain young member, our youngest, Robin, who is obsessed with crocodiles. Um, This is his favorite book at the moment. Um, And I I quite enjoy the crocodile as kind of representative of the kind of violent, selfish aspect of nature. I mean, look at how smug that crocodile (laughs) is right there. Um, This is what Charles Darwin said after a lifetime of observing the natural world. What a book a devil's chaplain might write on the clumsy, wasteful, blunderingly, uh, blundering low and horrible, cruel works of nature. This is the idea that nature is red in tooth and claw, that there is just tremendous suffering there in the natural world. Um, and in fact, the whole... Insight of evolutionary theory rests upon this, that there is struggle in nature, that species compete for resources and space in the environment, that they want to survive, they want to to put off death for themselves and for their offspring. And so this seems to enshrine struggle, violence, and death at the heart of the natural world. And this raises lots of questions. This insight into the struggle in nature was, was... Uh, is really vital in Darwin's theory. It's a part of its success. Um, So it is there. However, oh, actually, I just wanted to to illustrate this point slightly. Um, 14-year-old Matt Fell, there watching MTV, uh, unsupervised by his parents, which I think was probably quite a bad thing for me, um, comes across this band, the Bloodhound Gang. Hands up if you remember the Bloodhound Gang. Now, I need to just, hands up if you had any CDs of the Bloodhound Gang, surely it's not just me. <laughs> wow, the grace of God abounds. <laughs> Chief of sinners. Um, <clears throat> anyway, they, these guys are popularizing this kind of narrative that evolution is inherently selfish. They are saying, you and me baby, Ain't nothing but mammals. So let's do it like they do on the Discovery Channel. Brackets, getting horny now. Um, Interestingly, as I was preparing this, I remembered the music video to this song, which I do not recommend you YouTube. But it wouldn't be made now, post the Me Too controversies. Um, And the kind of turn that our culture's taken in reflecting upon the sexual revolution, which so often was undergirded by this kind of Darwinian idea that we're just animals. Interestingly, society's kind of raising some questions about this. And I think it is the case, and this is not just my personal opinion, this is a scholarly opinion, that this idea of the kind of struggle inherent in evolution has been overplayed historically. So here's a quote by Peter Bowler, Uh, I think he's in Oxford, he's a historian, and as far as I'm aware he's not a Christian, he's done a lot of excellent work on the history of evolutionary theory prior to Darwin and after Darwin, and he says this, Darwin's stress on the struggle for existence and survival of the fittest was crucial to his theory of natural selection and the explanation of the diversity of life. But it was also a part of his theory that was unpopular and often exaggerated. Modern evolutionary theory has gone beyond his emphasis on competition to include other aspects of evolution, such as cooperation and environmental influences as important components of evolutionary Change. Perhaps this narrative of violent struggle has been overemphasized. Um, and if you want to kind of look into some pioneering, groundbreaking stuff on this, uh, again, it's not left field, this is the kind of biology being done in the zoology department just 10 minutes down the road. You should do a Google search on biological mutualism and symbiosis. Um, and here's a quote from my supervisor. My supervisor has a PhD in chemistry and theology, um, and a cool fact about him is he occasionally gets brought in as a theological advisor for NASA, um, which I think he probably enjoys more than being my theological advisor, but there we go. Um, Andrew says there is a growing sense that the evolution of altruism and cooperation are fundamental to the whole structure of life. And in fact, We now think that many of the major transitions in evolutionary history only could have occurred because of species working together, because of this symbiosis. Um, It just raises a question. Nevertheless, suffering is there in the natural world. Uh, And it has been a part of the evolutionary story as far back as we know. How do we make sense of this as Christians? Well, I think we need to begin um, by being very attentive to what Genesis does and does not say. Um, Often, when Christians talk about the creation at the beginning we overcharacterize the goodness we overemphasize the goodness and we actually end up saying that creation was made perfect in the beginning And and no one is more guilty than this than children's Bibles, I'm afraid. Now, I love a good children's Bible, love reading it to my kids. Um, But so often, you you go to the the Genesis story, it's very beautiful pictures, and you have this impression that the world was made beautiful and all was in harmony. And there's Adam riding on the back of a lion, and Eve is kind of, you know, like high-fiving some kind of ferocious uh, shark, flippish high-five. Yes. And that that all was this kind of beautiful, beautiful harmony. Everything was perfect. But that's not what Genesis says. Genesis says in the beginning God made the world and it was very good, Um, very good. Not complete and finished, not perfect. In fact, what we see in Genesis one is that God makes the world and there's still work to be done. So God makes man and woman in the image of God, and he gives them responsibility. He gives them a job to do. He invites them into his creative process. And this is what he says. Go out and subdue the rest of the world. Now, if my wife Laura comes up to my office and uh, says, Matt, you need to subdue the boys. What does that imply about my boys? They're kicking off. They're rowdy, and I'm going to have to exert some kind of effort to bring them into order. Now, typically, actually how that works out is I go and tickle them, makes things worse, and Laura wishes she'd never got me involved in the first place. Um, but do you get what I'm saying? To, to go and subdue something means that But there's, there's an unruliness, there's a wildness going on here. Then, if we go into Genesis 2, which we didn't get time to read earlier on, what we see is is God creates a safe, cultivated space, a garden called Eden. And this safe, cultivated space is in a particular location. It's not the whole of the earth, it's a small area in the east, and he puts man and woman in there to work it, to tent it, and then from this safe place they are to go out and extend that safe, culturated space to the rest of the world. They are to go out into the wilderness and to subdue it. And this gives me a framework for thinking how actually when God creates the world, it doesn't have to be perfect, it doesn't have to be free from strife or conflict. But actually, when he creates humanity, he he creates us with the capacity to care for the world, to, to, to respond to the wildness and the danger of it, and to bring healing, to bring peace. And there's something about what it is to be human, isn't there, that we can tend and care for other species and environments in a way that no other creature can. This gives me a framework for thinking how actually evolution may have been this wild process with strife and struggle, um, and that actually that fits with the Genesis narrative. There's much more I could say about that, um, but I think for the space of time we need to, to move on, because there's one more question that we need to address thinking about this issue, and that is death. Um, death key to the christian faith in fact it's on the back wall over there is that when god comes to save us he comes in our flesh dies on our behalf and rises again because according to scripture human death is something that god is not for something that god did not intend god steps into the world to free us from death and the christian hope is resurrection and so christians are anti-death in fact there's parts of the bible which almost kind of chant and mock death as an enemy that god is going to defeat but the evolutionary story inscribes death at the very heart of all things how do we make sense of this well the first thing to say is that throughout the bible there's a category difference between animal death and human death there was lots of questions that then arise on that, and, and we're going to have to kind of set them to one side. We also have to kind of set aside the fact that we've all been trained by Disney to think of animals as kind of semi-human and, and like us. And of course, there are many similarities between animals and us. Animals are wonderful, incredible creatures, but there is still a vast difference between the most intelligent, sensitive animal, like a dolphin or a pig, and us. According to scripture, human death is just categorically different to animal death because humans are made in the image of God. We are spiritual. As well as physical and animal, we are spiritual animals. And that means we can relate to God and to one another in a way that is unique and distinct. We are capable of love. Love. And because we have been made to have a relationship with God and with one another in such an intimate, beautiful way, there is a longing in our heart for immortality. That when we die, something feels wrong about it. Ecclesiastes says that God has set immortality, eternity in the human heart. And we can't escape this. This is one of just the most fundamental things about our nature. This is the, the poet Philip Larkin atheist, probably one of the most morbid poets of the 20th century, Um, and he said this about death. It's what we know, have always known, know that we can't escape, and yet can't accept. There is something in us that balks at death, our own, the death of a loved one, That's because Scripture says we have been made in the image of God and eternity has been set in our hearts. So how can we have this story where species are dying and evolving and then human beings appear um, and yet our death seems to be a problem in God's eyes? Um, Well, sometimes we read the Bible, the biblical narrative as saying that humans were made to be immortal. Immortal. And there's a sense in which, yes, that has to be true, given everything else that the Bible says. But again, if we, are very, if, we, if we pay careful attention to what Genesis does and does not say, what we see in Genesis 3 is that human immortality was not an innate trait, but was a gift of grace. When Adam and Eve sin, when they rebel against God, God says they've become evil and we have to expel them from the garden now because if they stay in the garden, they will reach out, eat of the tree of life and live forever. And God will not allow us to live forever in a wicked state. And so he separates us from the tree of life. And the fact that Adam and Eve need the tree of life in order to live forever Implies that their immortality wasn't innate but came from outside, came from a tree, however we understand that. It was a gift of grace. So those thoughts help me get my head around how the evolutionary process may include suffering, why nature may be red in tooth and claw, and yet the good God of the Bible is still true. I can still trust and hope In him. And the Bible speaks into this that God works all things according to his purpose. Things may seem completely arbitrary and meaningless to us, and yet scripture gives me a lens to see how God is working out his good purposes. But not just as a distant manager of all things, the God of the Bible steps into creation. This is the Christian hope that God becomes incarnate, becomes like you and I, enters into a suffering world to demonstrate his compassion, his commitment to healing, and to save us. And the Bible promises that one day God will wipe away every tear. Now, I don't think this means that Every act of, every sorrowful moment, every tragedy, we will one day look at and go, oh yes, yes, that makes lots of logical sense. It was all for the greater good. I don't think that's what the Bible says. What the Bible speaks of is redemption. That God will do something that redeems all that sorrow and hardship. There's so much more we could say about this. Well, i found as a Christian living in an age of evolutionary thinking that the God I know through Jesus Christ not only gives me a framework to understand these things and to enjoy all the wonders that we learn from science but also allows me to live in a world where there are great questions about suffering and hardship and trust in him and I, I want to invite you, all of us today, um, whether you would say that you're a Christian uh, or whether you're just looking in, to come and bring your questions to this God. The God who steps into history to look us in the eye and to show us his compassion. Let me sum up and then we can get into questions. I mean, as I said, there's so much more to say. Um, I suppose I should recommend a book to you all. Um, This book, Creation and Evolution, not only does it have a very entertaining front cover, um, is excellent. This is probably my go-to textbook, uh, written by Dennis Alexander, who lives here in Cambridge, goes to a, a church down the road. Uh, his colleagues with Ruth over here, and if you talk to Ruth, she might be able to get you a cheeky discount. Um, highly recommended book. It's quite, it's quite a chunky one, it's a substantial read, but it's, it's really worth it. I think it's excellent. Dennis himself um, is a geneticist, isn't he, Ruth? Yes. So, um, you know, himself a scientist, uh, highly recommended. Um, I'm going to skip over these final thoughts and land there, because I imagine you might have one or two questions to put. Is that right, Simeon? Are there a few? Okay, cool. Okay. um, Thank you for listening. Mandy's come back in the room, and so any hard question, I'm going to go. Oh, yeah, interesting. Look, there's Mandy, and everybody gets excited. (laughs) (coughs) All right, can I sit down on on this box in my pocket, John? No, I can't sit on it. Don't sit on it. Move it this way. Hello.
1: Hi. There we go. Brilliant. Cool. Matt, thank you. What a tour de force. What a lot of ground you've helped us to cover this morning. Um, There's one question which is quite high up, which I'll deal with, and you can just take a breather. Um, I'd like that. (laughs) uh, You said the talk is based on your view, and it's not the official position of the church. What is the official position of the church? Fair question. Um, Very simply, there isn't one. Um, As elders, we would... uh, Uh, This is not something that we've sort of sat around a table for hours and hours and said, right, we think everyone in city church must agree with this. Uh, It's something that we would be very open-handed about um, in terms of what different people think. Um, So uh, that being said, Matt, uh, this is a great question. Straight for the jugular. (laughs) Do you understand that Adam and Eve were individuals and or the Garden of Eden, a physical place on earth, or pictorial language to help us understand?
2: Yeah, that's a really, really good question. Um, And it's really important that we think through it because the New Testament makes a number of statements that give real significance to the Genesis account. So um, Jesus will refer back to Adam and Eve and then the Apostle Paul when he's talking about what Christians believe salvation is all about, will point to Adam and Eve as, as this is the problem that needed to be fixed. Adam and Eve's story is all of our stories. And so regardless of which way we go, whether we're saying this is, you know these were literal people, a literal place, or whether we say it's, it's pictorial, it has the highest significance. It, it's, it's, and there are non-negotiable things in the Genesis story um, now I myself I incline to thinking that they were there was a historical Adam and Eve. I might need to just cl- clarify what I mean by that in a second. I think they, there was a historical pair I think there was a historical garden that 's where I'm at at the moment. If I get to uh, stand before the Lord one day and I find out it was pictorial language I'm not going to lose any sleep over that um, so that, that's where I would be at. I suppose just to say a little bit more about what I mean by Adam and Eve. I'm, are there more questions on that? Because um, if that's not where people are itching, I ain't going to scratch it.
1: Let's, well, why don't we, why don't we cool. just pause that? Let me just go to one that's a bit further down, which I think relates. Okay. Um, so just quickly, um, given Genesis 1 is not an eyewitness account, what is it genre-wise?
2: <sighs> oh... It's wonderful, It's the first thing that I would say. <laughs> I love Genesis 1. I really, really do, there's so much in there. Just to stir my, the way I view the world around me, think about who God is, perspective on how life unfolds, love it, meditate on Genesis 1. Don't just get bogged into the whole like evolution question about Genesis, there's so much more in there. Um, I think, well, the best biblical scholarship at the moment um, is making a lot of hay from looking at how Genesis 1 corresponds to um, other, other ancient religious texts other religious cosmologies. So the Babylonian account of how creation occurred um, or or various accounts arising from ancient Egypt. And Genesis 1 is engaging with these other accounts and kind of riffing on them, spoofing on them in some ways, um, critiquing them, redirecting them. And so that that makes you think there's, there's... uh, that, that's interesting. I don't know if that answers the question of what genre it is. I, I just I think our modern genres probably don't fit how ancient people wrote. So it's not as if you, know, you can say, oh, well, it's just poetry or it's just literal or just theological reflection. I think it's all of those things going beautifully hand in hand.
1: Mm. Cool. Um, there's a question here which got really popular before you addressed it. Great, So okay. you probably covered it, but maybe I can just press you a bit. So it's a question about death. Um, for Christians, death entered because of Adam's sin, but in the evolutionary account, death occurred before humans, so how do they reconcile? Yeah, okay. Um, so I guess you, you've already said something about difference between human death and animal death, um, but perhaps you'd like to speak to that phrase in Romans specifically.
2: Yeah. So, to be human, a part of what makes us human, is this capacity to relate to God, and to relate in a personal way to other people. Um, and I think that's part—that's partly what it means to be made in the image of God. And that language that the Bible gives us of image of God speaks of a kind of family resemblance. You know, Daniel sat there with his boy, you know, they look alike. There is something about what it is to be human that resembles God. Um, And because of that personal relationship between man and God and and human beings, um, there is something in us which naturally desires for that to continue. In a way that is, I think, different to any any other animal relationships. And if you look at the natural world, there are some animals which mourn the death, you know, of of a of a close, another close animal, but it's not it's, it's nothing like the psychological effect that death has on a human being. Um, so in the history of evolution, you have you have creatures that become very similar to us, advanced hominins in many ways, but when they become capable of this relationship with God, relationship with one another, something categorically has changed. Um, And I think that when that moment occurs in history, God enters into relationship with that species in such a way that offers them the gift of of eternal life. Mm. Um, And so in in my, and yeah, so that's how I would account for that story. I probably then need to say something about Genesis 2, where it says that God formed the man, um, Adam first, and then Eve. God forms man from the dust of the earth and breathes into his nostrils the breath of life. Um, And uh, theologians throughout the centuries have, have often said, well, that says something unique about what it is to be human. Again, one has to read the text of Genesis very, very carefully, because all the animals in Genesis are referred to as having the breath of life in them says that God breathed the breath of life into Adam and he became a living soul again that term living soul is used to describe other animals in the Old Testament Um, and so actually Genesis 2 doesn't distinguish us all that much like the other animals we're from the dust of the earth what Genesis 2 does say is that God was intimately involved in shaping us God formed the man from the dust but what does that look like? God doesn't have hands like you and I. God doesn't have a body. So what does it mean for God to form dust? I, I don't know. <laughs> uh, but it, it doesn't mean the kind of very literal thing we sometimes think it might mean.
1: Mm.
2: Is how I would answer that. Yeah. Just, just to say, I, we live in an age which wages war on human dignity. Our culture is so reducti- reductionistic as to what it is to be human. Um, And as a Christian I bulk at that and I think we all should and I think one of the most loving things you can do for your neighbor One of the greatest witnesses that the church can do is to say no you are more than just an animal (laughs) You are more than just dust and atoms Uh, You have a dignity and a purpose Um, And so I want to resist those kind of tendencies in our culture and actually, the more I learn about human evolution, the more I find it raises really interesting questions that, that I, I think theology has satisfying answers for in the way that th- our culture lacks the kind of resources to give an account for. Cool. You got more than your money's worth there, didn't you? Well,
1: Sorry. that's cool. The next question was about human evolution. So <laughs> we'll, we'll say that you've touched on that and, and bounce on to... Um, Seven days. Are the seven days in Genesis comparable to today's conception of a day?
2: No. Next question. (laughs) Very quickly, the reason I think that is the case is um, God creates light on day one, doesn't create the sun and the moon and and the stars until day four. And so you have these cycles of days happening without the sun. Mm -hmm. So what's going on there? Um, it's a question, I don't think that's a lockdown argument for that being several literal days, but it gives me pause for thought.
1: Okay, cool. Um, I don't know if the band want to come back up while I ask Matt one last question. Um, so th- this, this came in very early in your talk and has you know, maintained quite a high ranking throughout. Um, is the Big Bang compatible with creation? I assume it means the Genesis creation account.
2: I don't, I don't know if I know enough about the Big Bang. Um, to give an answer but people were very interested in the fact that the Big Bang um, seemed to give us a kind of start point for the history of the cosmos um, a beginning and that then raises the question of well what causes that Um, and for a long time Christians got very excited about that idea now physicists are kind of saying "Well, well actually we can kind of postulate some kind of something before the big bang some kind of state um and so they're kind of kind of moving it back uh, i i think i just i'm a bit nervous about pinning too much hope on that hmm. um
1: and i guess if we're going to do your reading the text of genesis carefully thing when we get to the very beginning of genesis 1 there's already an earth yes so there's not really speaking into how we got there
2: in the beginning god formed the heavens and the earth yeah and, and then there's darkness and yes. the deep and who knows what's going on there
1: okay. anyway This is a great question. Uh, If God uses evolution, then at what point does man become in the image of God? And how does that happen? And how would Neanderthals and other species of, you know, sort of subhuman species or or pre-human species fit into that
2: story? Oh, dear. (laughs) That's, I mean, that essentially is my thesis project. Um, So hold on to your seats, everybody. (laughs) No, I I will try and be as quick as I can on that. So... um, So, I, I, so the distinctive thing about human beings, according to the Scripture, is that we are made in the image of God. Um, and it's such an interesting concept that in the Bible, because it's so important throughout Scripture, but isn't often unpacked very much. Um, but the, the kind of key thing is this sense of a, a family resemblance um, between us and God. Um, and there's lots of ways that I think that then kind of works out. But I think kind of key to what it is to be a human being in the image of God is that we are able to know God, love God, and to love our neighbor. That seems to be a, a, a key thing. And that loving our neighbor you know, is worked out in righteousness and justice and all of these things. Um, I think it also involves things like rationality and and some kind of certain kind of ethical and social things, but I think at the heart of it is that we are able to know and love God and to love our neighbor. Um, And so I think if humans evolved, um, we became human in the moment when we were able to do that. Um, How that happened... um, is the million-dollar question that anthropologists are trying to work out. But what's really interesting is, over the past 20, 30 years, um, there has been a a lot of interest in in what we call uh, cultural evolution. Um, And and to some degree, the kind of uh, community and the role of community and what what it is to be a, a human being. Um, so if you look, look in nature, there are species that are very intelligent, dolphins are very smart, um, certain uh, apes can use tools, um, various species have, have quite impressive communication with one another. Um, but the, the history, the evolutionary history of human beings, as far as we understand it, has this very remarkable story about how certain things allowed uh, early humans to become very social, um, and, and cultural, in a way that no other creature can do. And once those things start to happen, they create like a feedback loop in evolution. So as soon as you can start um, doing culture, that then changes the options for how you and your children are going to live. Once you start living in bigger societies and you develop the the brain capacity to relate to more people, that that then changes what's going to happen for you and your family going forward. And so this creates a very unique kind of evolutionary path going forward. And what I find really interesting about this, this is intense for Sunday night. I'm very sorry, but you asked the question. I'm (laughs) sorry. Is is sometimes. Like a pop culture version of evolution will say, our culture and our like ethics is just explained by genetics. But that's not actually true. Our genetics are just as equally explained by the fact that we have this history of culture and community. And so it's a bit of a chicken and egg kind of thing, which one comes first? Um, but what that system is, we have flourished as a species in the way that we have because of community and ethics. And so that suggests to me that there's something deep and profound. And if you think about like a fish, fishes can swim. Um, and their, their, their ability to swim tells you something about the environment they live in. Swimming corresponds to water, doesn't it? What do, what does human, What do human morals and community correspond to? What do they tell us about the environment we live in? I think they say something about this universe that at the heart of it, there is the deep grooves of a universe are around love and wisdom and righteousness. That might have been too much on a Sunday night. Next, question.
1: thank you, though. But uh, do you want to say anything about Neanderthals and, <laughs> and, and um, you know, creatures that look a bit like a human but it's not a Homo sapiens?
2: Yeah, I, I think um, I think throughout the evolutionary process. God has delighted in the things that he has made um, and some of them may have looked like us resemble us in certain ways but I, I think mm-hmm. what we are is something unique and mm-hmm. different um, and so even if what before looked like us in, in many ways I think there was a, a, there was a, a, a particular shift that um, was irreplicable
1: okay. yeah. This is a lovely question Matt um, If God created a good but imperfect world with work to do What does that say about his nature and character?
2: It says that he delights in sharing. Um, That that God doesn't just want a a world to look on and say, ah, I did a really good work there. He wants a world to share in his goodness and joy. Um, And also, um, this is something... My supervisor pointed out to me. He wrote a really good paper on this. Um, if God, God is uh, God, creates to communicate and to share His goodness. God creates through His Word, and 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 creation speaks of God and His goodness. Um, but if that's what, but that, if that's the kind of part of what creation is, um, as an endless task, it is an infinite task to display the goodness of the infinite God. And so creation in its billions of years of history in every stage of it will never exhaustively communicate how good God is. And so I think um, what, the, what the developing nature of the cosmos says is that, that God is infinitely glorious and he delights in progress. And, and I think there's all sorts of wonderful things to take from that.
1: Mm, lovely. Um, okay, this is a... Big question in this debate, what do you think about timescales? Scientists think, you know, often say that the Earth is billions of years old. Um, people estimate from the Bible it's only thousands of years old. What's going on there?
2: Yeah. Um, my wife says I can't deal with timescales on a day-to-day basis. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know if I should be trusted to this. Um, so, interestingly, um, I, I read a lot of pre-modern theologians... Um, and interestingly, there's n- I, I can't, I've yet to find a theologian from before uh, the Victorian era who emphasised that the world was 6,000 years old. It is Actually, it's a very modern interpretation of Genesis. Okay. So actually, an Irish bishop called Usher um, counted the genealogies in the Bible and got to the, to the 600. When, uh, when was that? Uh, my goodness,
1: I like 19th century or
2: something? I think it's the 19th century. It may be slightly earlier, maybe okay. 18th century. Um, and, um, but what's interesting is if you, the, you look at the genealogies, um, they, they, they make jumps. So in the Bible, the genealogies, then when an author of the Bible gives you a genealogy, they're not doing a, a who-do-you-think-you-are episode. Um, <clears throat> they're, they're kind of painting a picture. And so Jesus' genealogy... Um, it, it makes big jumps, but it includes the people it does because Matthew is trying to make a point about who Jesus is. Um, and so it's not to say that the genealogies are untrustworthy or anything like that. It's just they weren't, weren't written with that purpose of, of giving you a kind of riddle to solve how old the earth is. Yeah.
1: Cool. Um, Phil and Mark, why don't you come up while I put one last question to Matt. The, the last remaining Dramatic highest... music, if you would, Phil. <laughs> Sorry?
2: I said dramatic music, if you Dramatic so.
1: music, yeah, because this is, this is the last highest-ranking question, okay. and it's possibly the most profound yet. Okay. Any thoughts on the dinosaurs?
2: <laughs> <laughs> um, I didn't get asked this this morning. I was very sad about that. And um, um, how's your chance? I... Laura wants... Uh, shared a proposal with me that she thought that like you have evolution creatures come and then dinosaurs and then all of a sudden the Lord's like Ooh, no, no, too big too big <laughs> <Let's start again. laughs> um, too big too fierce, um, which uh, I enjoyed and then had some theological problems with. Uh, <laughs> that's the end of the evening right there really. Um, I like I said I think I think if we have this evolutionary story if, if it if it is correct then I think the Lord has delighted in every stage of it. Um, One thing to throw out, I suppose. Um, No, I'm going to rein that thought back in. I think think God enjoyed dinosaurs as much as the average five-year-old does. (laughs) Brilliant. Thank you so much, Matt.
1: What a gift he's given us this evening. Thank you, Matt.